Go ahead and get your, if you need a sheet, there's extra ones up here. And the roadmap for the next couple of weeks is we're going to pick up where we left off last time and go through these texts of scripture that are helpful in supporting uh, the doctrine of sufficiency. And then we're going to consider the theological underpinnings of the biblical counseling position and uh, the integrationist position and look at general revelation and sp special revelation and um, what some have called the two book two book view two books view of God's revelation and how you view those things will also determine how you view the integration of psychology and Christianity so that will be starting next week but today we're going to finish up our study from last week on what is the sufficiency of Scripture. And in God's providence, I read a few things this week that were help, so helpful that I wanted to back up a little bit because we got right to Psalm 19. I wanted to back up a little bit and before I got to Psalm 19 fully to say a few things from this uh, chapter that I had recently read. So let us pray and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise on this beautiful morning, though slightly cooler. We give you all the praise and the glory for the rising and the setting of the sun and the weather, and we give you thanks and praise for this church. We are so grateful for it. We are grateful for the tradition of sound teaching and of sound shepherding, of discipleship, of evangelism. Help us to continue in these paths as we obey your word and seek to walk in obedience to it, in faithfulness, and in joy. Lord, we pray for the uh, fruit of the Spirit of joy to be evident in our lives and that we would continue to walk in faith in Christ unhindered. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let us turn over. So you should be on your sheets. You're just On your sheets, you're just uh, on the second page, the second side where we are on... Uh, text that, uh, biblical texts that establish the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling. We're going to look at those in a moment. But I do want to say a few things about these points that Jeremy Pierre made in a chapter I read this week that were so good that I thought, hey, though we started Psalm 19 last week, let's back up just for a moment. I want to give him uh, a voice here because he said some really helpful things, clarifying things for me. So it's admitted, obviously, that Scripture does not speak to everything exhaustively. Obvi that's just an obvious point. It doesn't say everything that we would want it to say, but as we saw last week with regard to Scripture not saying everything we'd want it to say on a particular topic, why is that not relevant? Remember what we said last week? One of the claims, and we, we read his claim on the board here, Stanton Jones, an integrationist, we read his claim of why he doesn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. He says, because Scripture does not tell us everything we want it to know or want to know about specific uh, topics, particularly schizophrenia, child development, and other categories. He said, why was that not a legitimate argument? Do you remember? Is it too early in the morning? Um, that, that's true, but it, that's not 
specifically how, why, why I took him to task just a little bit last week. Right. The, the sufficiency of Scripture is not based on someone's subjective opinion of what they would want to know, myself included. I could go to Scripture and say, well, uh, there's a lot of things it doesn't say that I want to know about. But that doesn't, that's irrelevant to whether or not it's sufficient to speak to what it speaks to, okay, and what it is intended to speak to. And I, the illustration I gave was the 73 Camaro, you're rebuilding the engine, you go to a mechanic with years of experience, and they give you a manual that says, this is all you'll need to fix this engine, and you read through it, and you're like, you go back a week later and say, hey, it doesn't give me the zero to, six, zero to 60 time of this Camaro, it doesn't give me the quarter mile time, it doesn't tell me about the new theories of spark, spark plug efficiency and de, uh, design, and so it's clearly not sufficient. And the, the mechanic's like, you're not hearing me. Okay, this is all that you need. All those things that you are interested in, that's cool, that's fine, that's good information to know. But it's irrelevant in, for you being able to fix this engine. And in terms of instruction, this is all the instruction you need. And so that was the illustration that I used to help us see that this, this claim, this straw man really, this straw man saying that the, the Bible does not contain all that we would want to know about particular topics. First of all, that's never been the the biblical counseling position on the sufficiency of Scripture. No one has ever confessed that it's exhaustive or that it tells us everything that we want to know or that it tells us uh, everything exhaustively. But to show that the, the, the subjective desire of what I would want to know about a particular topic is ultimately irrelevant when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling. We're arguing that Scripture is sufficient to do what God has designed it to do, and when it comes to counseling other believers, counsel, uh, Christians counseling Christians, it is truly sufficient, regardless or irrelevant of what I would want to know about particular topics as they pertain to counseling. Okay, so that being the case, um, we wanted to clear the decks and get a get a grip on these important issues related to methodology, related to the sufficiency of Scripture. And I just found Jeremy Pierre's points here trenchant and related to what we talked about last week. And he said, in relation now to the sufficiency of Scripture, he says, it is precisely because Scripture does not contain everything God could say, so we would readily admit that, okay, that God could say more, right, because he knows all things exhaustively, so he could have said more. It's precisely because Scripture does not contain everything God could say that we must pay careful attention to what He has said. It reveals what He intends to be the priorities of our knowledge. That, for me, was just mind-blowing. Okay? When we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, it's really pointless to begin to list the ways the Scripture, uh, or the things that Scripture does not talk about. Because we have a word from God, we have a word from the God of all knowledge who knows all things exhaustively, and yet he has chosen to give us very specific knowledge, right? And so then the, the point that Pierre is making is that that knowledge that has been revealed should now set the priorities for how we think about what is most important to know. And that's his point. It is precisely because Scripture does not contain everything God could say that we must pay careful attention to what He has said. It reveals what He intends to be the priorities of our knowledge. Um, 
and he go and then that's um, he goes on to say this just shortly thereafter. He says, in summary, it is not sufficient to acknowledge that Scripture is authoritative about every topic it addresses. Something that we would certainly affirm. A person can do this and still have an entirely lopsided view of a number of things. We are, and this is key, and this is related to what he just said. We are also required to acknowledge that Scripture sets the agenda for what we focus on. Again, this is just this is just paradigm shifting. God's interpretation of reality demands that our interpretation follow suit. So we don't just look at Scripture and agree that, yes, it's authoritative on what it speaks to. We also look to Scripture and ask the question, what is Scripture prioritizing? And we must follow in that course. When it talks about the human condition, God has given us what we need to know about the human condition that is most important. And so we need to follow that knowledge and study it as exhaustively as we can in the scriptures themselves and then have that shape how we think about and how we assess other knowledge. Um, when he says this about common grace, a, a topic we'll talk about in a little bit probably in the sufficiency of scripture section. He says, because of the doctrines of the image of God in common, in, uh, image of God and man, and of common grace, grace, we may generally rely on humankind's ability to make accurate observations about reality, including our own psychological experience. And I even said this last week. It's, it's not a problem to say that people working outside of a biblical worldview can make correct observations about a number of things. Where does it start to go off the rails? when you move from observation to what? Interpretation. Observation into the whys and the, the wherefores. Why? Because interpretation is what you do when you take those observations and now plug them into your greater worldview and the way things are and the way reality is and the way humankinds are composed and their relationship to God or to not God. Whether or not we are purely biological or whether we have a spiritual component. And you're taking that observation that you just made about human thinking and behavior, and now you're drawing in uh, interpretations, but those in interpretations are based on how you are placing that into your greater framework of reality. And so that's, that's why you start moving some observations into interpretation. But even then, and this is an important point he made, even then, he says this, he says, what we see, so given that point he just made, what we see is heavily, heavily dependent on the questions we ask, and the questions we ask are dependent on our control beliefs. So even our observations or the things that we take as evidence for a particular uh, situation or condition, even those things are going to be shaped by prior assumptions about reality and so on. So this just goes back to what we were talking about earlier about there is no purely objective viewpoint or counsel. Remember that we were talking about counsel, that any kind of counsel that you are getting, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from underlying assumptions about God, man, reality, truth, and so on. What is appropriate behavior, what is appropriate thinking, and so on. What our greatest problem is, and so on. So, I wanted to just reintroduce us to those topics, bring Jeremy Pierre's points in because I thought they were helpful, and um, now move on to back into Genesis, I mean, sorry, Psalm 19. So let's go there. Any questions about what we just talked about with the quotes I just mentioned?
too early in the morning to bring in those, those, uh, those kinds of quotes. Well, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Um, Interpret them, sure. Yeah. So, could we take like psychological observations that give us greater insight into scripture? Um, I, I think the question would be, what psychological, um, what psychological observations are you referring to that give us greater insight into scripture? I'm not. I'm not saying there there are not. I'm just asking what specific ones would you be referring to? And that, that's an important part of this, this conversation, is we need specific examples. Um, and so I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, challenging you specifically. I'm challenging all of us, actually. Um, and this goes for any kind of uh, conversation. I'll get, I'll get questions um, like that about, um, you know, how do I talk to so-and-so about this, this, this issue? And, and, or what if this issue comes up? And I'll say, can you give me some specific examples? And typically that is just really helpful to then talking about, okay, this is the course we need to take and these are the principles to be applied. So that's, that's the question I would ask. Okay, yeah, okay. If, if, if it's true that a person, being a person in, in God's world, whether they're a believer or not, believe it or not, can make, because of common grace and being made in the image of God, they can make some accurate observations about human behavior and... Um, and so on, then is there certain insights that they could have that then give us greater insight into Scripture? And I say, well, let's assess those insights and see, see what we find. Um, but that's why it's important to have specific ones. And so uh, if you have them, then, then sure, we can talk about that, and I'm happy to do that. I think the biblical counseling position, though, is to say that for counsel, Christians counseling Christians, insights from modern psychological thinking are not necessary in order to complete and fulfill the counseling task Christians between Christians and Christians. So that there's not... So, sure, let's just say for the sake of argument, sure. Um, there might be these insights. What the biblical counseling position is saying is that those are not necessary in order to rightly know, interpret, and apply Scripture to the Christian in order to enable them to overcome that particular problem that they're having, in order to fulfill the mandates of discipleship, and so on. Yeah, James. In regards to that, um, you would say that it's uh, not necessary, but that doesn't mean unhelpful. Yeah, I, I guess if, if we are saying that Scripture is sufficient, and that those insights are unnecessary, uh, I guess the question then would be, in what way are they helpful? Right? And again, this is why we need specific, give me some specific ones. And if you have them, then, then let's talk about them. That's fine. I'm not going to shoot that down. But in, in what sense do we mean helpful? Right? Because if we are saying that Scripture and the Spirit uh, and all that God has given us, as we'll see in 2 Peter 1, is, pertains to life and godliness... And this is something I'll bring up. If you, if you, what, um, what counsel or what insights about the soul, mind, and behavior does not fall under the heading of godliness? And if God has given us all that we need for life and godliness, and I think in the context there and in the, 
the, the greater context of Scripture would mean that all that he's given us in Scripture, the Spirit, and the church, um, local church primarily, uh, if, if he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, then the question is, is what counsel or insight would, would be outside of that category or would be necessary to fulfill that category? So um, I guess as I've been reading and studying, I think that is the question for me, though, is let's talk about specifics. If you have specifics, cool. That's great. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But there were uh, practical affiliates that he wasn't make, able to make uh, progress on controlling that OCD. Uh, and so at that time, there was a, I guess, an expert OCD, helping OCD. Yeah. Yeah, so one thing that's important to point out is that in defense of the biblical counseling model, it's not a, it, it's a, not a defense uh, of specific biblical counselors, right? So um, the fact that someone has gone to a biblical counselor and did not, quote-unquote, receive help from them or what they perceive to be help does not, therefore, undermine the biblical counseling position on the sufficiency of Scripture. It may be that they, those one or two, I don't know how many counselors, one, two, uh, that they went to were unskilled in that particular area. Um, maybe they are not fully equipped to, to handle these things the theologically and biblically, and they, maybe they have a kind of a warped or substandard view of, of counseling and so on. That's a possibility. So I just want to point that out, that we're not, and I, I may have even said that last week, or I'll say it in coming weeks, the, when we're talking about the biblical counseling, when we're talking about biblical counseling, we're talking about a methodology. Right? We're, I'm not trying to define every last biblical counsel out there because there's some bad ones. You know, the whole just pray and read the Bible. That's bad biblical counseling. That's not biblical counseling, actually. Uh, there's a lot more to it and uh, a lot more working of, in, in, in the heart and, and patterns and things like that. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that I just read a couple of weeks ago about uh, two men, in, um, one of which you would know uh, well. You'd know his name. He's, he's quite, a famous, quite famous in evangelical circles. Um, 
these two guys, uh, one, he was the pastor, he's the lead pastor, and the other guy was on staff, and they help, helped a, a young man overcome his, uh, what was uh, dubbed or classified by a secular psychologist as OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, just hold that thought for a second. We will probably in a few weeks actually walk through specific diagnoses from the DSM, which is, which is the, the book, the diagnostic manual for psychologists. Okay, we'll walk through a few of the diagnoses that they give and to see how they are described, talk about whether or not they are uh, giving us the essence of the diagnosis or how, how they're diagnosing. Is it just based on a bundle of symptoms, what it is? And, and then try to actually view those things or define those things in more biblical categories and we'll talk about this. So that's gonna be something we address. But back to the OCD thing. So, um, these two, uh, this pastor and this biblical counselor on staff, were able to helpful, helpfully uh, lead this man out of his OCD, which was starting to control his life. Okay? So there, is, there are situations where the sufficiency of Scripture, you could say, is, is demonstrated in, in a particular counseling situation. So, again, I don't know the ins and the outs and the details of this particular situation. Then the question that goes back to uh, what we said about what does it mean to truly help someone? right? Is the definition of help, is it sufficient to define help as merely helping someone to um, overcome a, a problem so that it doesn't disrupt their, their life anymore? Is that, is that sufficient? Just help someone overcome their life, overcome a problem in their life so it's not disrupting or it's what psychologists call a disorder now or a dysfunction. A dysfunction or a disorder is now what takes you out of your normal routine, removes you from the normal routines of life, makes it so that you are, you're no longer able to function appropriately or normally in, in society or in normal social settings, right? So this is a dysfunction or a disorder. Uh, but is it sufficient to say that merely because I was able to uh, give a few insights and some, some patterns and these kinds of things to, to help someone overcome their problem, is that sufficient to say that I have helped them from a biblical standpoint? And that's where I would start to argue I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. Because if the person has overcome this problem, I would argue, as a Christian, and it's an, I, I would argue that OCD, in that case, sounded like it was a non-medical issue. Um, non-medical, this is a matter of thinking and a matter of, of behavior and so on. That if a person has overcome a problem that is non-medical, that is under, under the realm of discipleship, because this is a matter of thinking, this is a matter of behavior, that if they've done that apart from Christ and His Word, then how much have they truly been helped? They may have been able to, uh, to now deal with this problem in such a way that they are now back to functioning normally, but could it be that now that has opened up greater problems to maybe a greater reliance, and now I'm just speculating now because I don't know the specific situation, but a greater reliance on self and a greater uh, reliance on their uh, ability to overcome these things or so a myriad of things. So that's, that brings us back to the, the very first lesson when I started asking the questions was, what do you mean by help? What do you mean by solutions? And when it comes to helping people in the area of discipleship, which is what I would call that situation, when we are giving them resources that then help them to overcome those problems apart from Christ and His Word, have we truly helped them? And again, we can have that conversation and that debate, but that's where that's where I start to become a little concerned, right? Um, again, and then, and then finally I'll say this. 
Um, this goes back to how skilled these biblical counselors were. Being able to lay out principles and patterns and things like this um, to help someone overcome obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, in its essence, in my judgment, the, uh, the inability to think rightly about yourself and your environment before God, okay? That leads you to, to do things that you feel compelled to do when in reality you don't, you're not actually being compelled by anything or anyone to do them, okay? So in, in, the, in that case, these uh, patterns or these insights that, that might be offered by secular counselors, often when I hear them, I'll be like, that doesn't sound like the property, exclusive property of secular counseling. That sounds like things that you could read in Scripture and actually find in Scripture. And if they are, then to what degree, how necessary then is that the, are those insights that we receive from the, uh, the secular counselor, right? And so uh, there have been times when people say like, yeah, they, they gave me this insight and insight. I'm like, yeah, that sounds a lot like the Proverbs. Right? or things that you'd find in Scripture, or things that, things that you'd be able to discern with just a sanctified common sense, you might say, sanctified reason. That is your reason. So saying that these things are, now we're getting back to that word, saying that these things are necessary is exactly what we, we I should say, um, arguing against the idea that these things are necessary is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. So I think it's going to be helpful for us to go through specific DSM diagnoses like OCD. We'll get, we're going to, OCD is one of them. We're going to, get, we're going to talk specifically about that. Um, anxiety, um, even like kind of deeper like personality issues and disorders and so on. We want to, we want to uh, work through those and try to think biblically about them and try to understand where the, the modern mindset has derived these diagnoses and how they're diagnosing them and to even find out how uh, my medical uh, or mental illness is being defined. So that was a long answer to a, a short question but and something that we will get back to, but that's so. Okay, Psalm 19. Now, the, it's slightly misleading, it's not misleading, it's not the right word, but it's a bit reductionistic, maybe that's the word, to, to just go through Psalm 19 and then 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, and then 2 Peter 1, and suggest that these are the, the only texts that speak to the sufficiency of Scripture. Actually, and I'll, we'll read a quote later from Heath Lambert, which I think is really helpful, actually... If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, the whole Scripture should be speaking to its own sufficiency because of how useful and relevant it is to all of our particular situations and problems, whatever they might be. Okay? But these texts speak very specifically to the nature of Scripture so that when we think about Scripture, we can see that inherently and by its very nature, it has a sufficiency to fulfill what God has given it for. And then when we determine what God has given it for, we can see that surely it is sufficient to fulfill those requirements and so on. So, what we saw last week, the law of the Lord is perfect. This is Psalm 19 now, turning there. Psalm 19, verse 7. Verses 1 through 6 are speaking to what we would call universal revelation. God has revealed himself universally to all people. Sometimes it's called general revelation. Most of the time it's called general revelation. I would encourage you to substitute that language 
general revelation for universal revelation. General revelation or universal revelation is the revelation that God has made of, him, of himself. And this is important because it's going to tie into next week. This is the revelation that God has made of, of himself that is available to all people at all times, in all places, under all circumstances. That is general revelation. And I, I, I think universal is better because it captures the idea better and because the, uh, the word general has been used by some to mean generic. God has given us a general revelation out there. It's kind of general. It's, it's, it's not specific, and then God has given a special or specific revelation in Scripture. That's not what the term is meant to me, uh, meant uh, historically. It means universal. And so I prefer to use the word, when we're talking about general revelation, use the word universal revelation. It better captures the concept. And that is what you find in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. Yes? So natural law is related to this idea of, of universal revelation, but that's a whole different category. And I mean, it's a pretty complex category. But yes, it is related. It falls under that heading. Natural law funds, falls under that heading, yeah. So this is, verse, this is verses 1 through 6. Typically, this is how interpreters have viewed this, drawn these theological categories out of Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 6 is this universal revelation. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I think I mentioned how uh, did I mention this to you? Colton was talking about the. We were at dinner table the other day, and Colton's like, "Why, like, why billions of stars and billions of galaxies and uh, of of stars made that are bigger than ours? Like, why did God do that?" And you're like, "Psalm 19:1, son, right? Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, or as my dad likes to say, anything worth doing is worth overdoing, and that's what God did. He just, it just, the heavens declare the glory of God." And uh, in such an intense and overwhelming way that you are led to either worship if you are right with this God or to hide yourself because of the impending doom that you will face if you are not right with this God. So God has revealed himself in the creation. Paul will go on to say in Romans 1, 20, that he's revealed his power and his existence and his divine nature in the creation ever since it's been made. This is called universal revelation because it's available to all people everywhere at all times under all circumstances. There's not one image bearer on the planet who does not have access to this universal revelation. And then Paul will also go on to talk in Romans 2 that the conscience also bears witness to God's existence. Because someone might say, well, what if someone is blind and deaf and, and these kinds of things? Well, they also have a conscience, okay? So this is what universal revelation is, available to all people at all times, at all, in all places, under all circumstances. But in Psalm 19, verses 7 and following, now it's talking about particular revelation, or specific revelation, or special revelation, as it's been called. It's called, been called special revelation. I prefer to call it a particular revelation because that, I think, captures it better. Special, you're like, special revelation. Oh, that's so special, or, right? But that's not what it's saying. It's saying this is particular revelation. This is not general, as in available to all times, at all places, at all, to all people, but actually it's specific to only certain people. The Scripture, not all people have access to the Scripture, hence the reason why we do missions, right? So how is the Scripture described? What are its characteristics? How should we view the Bible? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word here, perfect, 
means complete without blemish, nothing lacking. Okay? There's nothing lacking from Scripture. It is perfect. It revives the soul. And this word for revive here can be restore. It can actually have the, the idea of, of turning. So it's, it, the idea here is repentance. It has the ability to convert the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So this idea of like, you have uh, translations who are have it translate revive or translate restore or translate convert. I think those are all legitimate words because if it does mean convert or to turn or to get person, a person right on, back on track, that does revive the soul, right? So I think all those words are fine translations. And what needs reviving? Well, the soul needs reviving. It's weighed down with depression, despair, heartache, aimlessness, sadness, grief, purposelessness, sin, and trouble. And the scripture is perfect, and so it can restore and convert the soul out of those troubles. But it's also sure, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I just, I, this is probably one of my favorite verses in terms of describing the nature of the Bible. The, the word here for simple means naive youth, someone who just doesn't have a lot of sense, natural or otherwise, just they may not have a lot of education or they just don't have a lot of natural intelligence. And yet, the person who can't, didn't even graduate uh, from eighth grade can have more wisdom about the way life works than the person who has a, PH, who, who, than the person who has a PhD but who rejects God. So the, the, the person who didn't graduate eighth grade but who embraces Christ in the, his word can have more wisdom about the way reality really is and the way life works than the person who has a PhD yet rejects God. That's what this is saying. It, it makes wise the simple. And this should be a very encouraging verse because this also implies that Scripture is so clear that that simple, uneducated person, in as much as they're able to read, can understand God's Word and it can make them wise. So this is actually a really important verse for the clarity of Scripture. It's an important doctrine that we would argue that Scripture is clear, so clear that children can understand it, the simple can understand it, and they can make them wise, right? I just love to think about uh, the, the person who, not having a lot of formal education, can know God and to walk in true wisdom and can be a model to other Christians, yet they have very little formal education. It's just a beautiful thing to see. Why is that? Because the testimony of the Lord is sure. You can rely upon it. It tells you accurately what's really going on in life and in the world, with other people, with yourself, with God. The most important realities that we can experience, the scripture is sure about, reliable, trustworthy. And so this uneducated person doesn't have a, a lot of human knowledge and learning, but they have this sure word right here, and they can open it, and every sentence is sure and reliable, and so they can learn and grow and grow in wisdom and grow in the knowledge of God. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing. And I love to think about those kinds of people. Um, the law, let's see, that's the testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right. So what are these precepts? Um, these refer to orders, can even kind of have this idea of a roadmap. It's directing you. The precepts, okay, God's word are, is also precepts to put you on the right path, to direct you like a roadmap would. They are right, or they are straight, okay? They don't lead you astray. They can be trusted wholeheartedly.
um, a roadmap that leads one through life away from harm is not restrictive. It's freedom giving, right? So this is not talking about restrictions. This is talking about actually the very means that by, way, by which we can have joy in this life. And that you might have heard this illustration before. Uh, a train is not truly free when it can go any which way off the rails and fly off into a, a ditch or into a field. A, a, tr a train is most free when it's set rightly on those rails and can just scream down the track at 100 miles an hour, right? But it's, it's kept on that track by those rails, right? And this, is the, this is what the scripture is doing. These are precepts that keep us on the, the, the right and good path because they themselves are right. They're reliable. But not only uh, reliable, but also not only reliable in terms of their epistemological content, in terms of the knowledge of reality, but also right ethically, right? Have con and he'll have connotations of ethics here in a little bit, but they're to be trusted ethically as well. They lead you in doing what is truly right. And when we think about counseling, counselees are in need of reliable direction and wisdom in their life and instruction on how to live. Personal problems, even serious ones, I would argue, stem from warped thinking that has led the person badly astray and brought them to do things that have deeply harmed them or others. And because they are without Christ, their guilt and shame compounds and their conscience becomes either seared or so burdened that they are led to madness. I just don't think that the modern thinking has really understood what sin and the perpetual cycle of sin in an unrelieved conscience does to the psyche. Constant sin, you're harming yourself, you're harming others, you're harming yourself and you're harming others. You can't relieve yourself of this burdened conscience and it drives you, in some cases, to madness. When we walk in ethically right ways, we find joy because we are walking according to the way the Creator has made us and the world. And this is what we see in Scripture. The precepts of the Lord are right, and they so what do they do? They rejoice the heart. It's, it's, it's good. You find yourself in very pleasant places when you are living and acting according to what is truly right. And we, we've experienced this, and this is why the, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's you experience this joy because you're doing what is right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. This is another great uh, picture here, beautiful picture. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and how, because it's pure, it enlightens the eyes. Psalm 12:6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And enlightens the eyes. Um, one commentator says, it says, this enlightening the eyes refers not merely to enlightening of the understanding, but to one's whole condition. It makes the mind clear, the body as well as the mind healthy and fresh, for darkness in the, of the eyes is sorrow, melancholy, and bewilderment. This, and I think that's a really helpful, and that's just a commentator. That's not a, someone who has some sort of counseling bent or some sort of axe, counseling axe to grind. Uh, they're just commenting on the text and, and what this, is, this means here. This is a way of saying that God's word brings health to the person, holistic health. And you see this in, in other texts of Scripture. So um, Proverbs 3.8 as an example. Proverbs 3.8 
this connection between obedience and the Word of God and holistic health. Proverbs 3, starting in verse 5. I mean, you can start, you can start in verse 3. Let, uh, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Sounds pretty holistic. It's grounded in trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, on your own human understanding about the way things are or should be. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And what will that turning away from evil result in? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We are body and soul unities. Fancy word for that is psychosomatic unities. We're body and soul. Psycho, uh, psyche, that's soul. Uh, soma, which is a, a New Testament word for body. Uh, psychosomatic, we're body-soul unities. And so when you are walking in the trust of the Lord and turning away from sin and not relying upon your own wisdom and you are finding success and, uh, uh, good success and favor in the sight of God and man, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, which I don't think is metaphorical. I think it's meant to say it's going to affect your body too. Uh, another, another text would be uh, 1430 in the Proverbs. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the, ro- the bones rot. So our soul's condition can have a physical effect, right? And, and of course, I would say that our body, bodily condition can also affect our soul. That's, that should go without saying. It goes both ways. But here we're just pointing out that uh, the, what's going on inwardly, the, the health inwardly leads to some physical health as well. And that's not to suggest that, that Christians who are walking in a healthy spiritual life will be free from uh, ail- physical ailments. That's, that's the lie of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But we still do need to recognize that Scripture makes a clear connection between the soul's health and, and the effect that it will have on the body. We don't want to ignore that. The, the health, wealth, and prosperity folks... They get it half right. They just don't get it completely right, which makes it completely wrong. So anyways, um, amen. So, but that, what you want to be careful to do in any situation that you don't, because a, a, an errant group is affirming true things, but putting those true things alongside wrong things, you don't want to therefore now reject the true things, right? That's why we need to remain tethered to the scripture that helps us navigate all those treacherous, pa- treacherous paths in discernment. Uh, Proverbs 15:30 The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, good news refreshes the bones. I remember talking to a friend in college and he says he when he got he was just a troubled young man. And when he got saved, he just remembers I just slept. I just slept. He finally was able to sleep. And that is one of the most profound memories he has of his conversion. He could finally just sleep. He wasn't referring to like the sluggard turning on like a hinge on his bed. He was talking about the ability to rest and finally close his eyes without having to worry about all the horrible things that were inevitably going to happen to him because of all the wreckage he had caused in his relationships and so on. And he was just able to sleep. I just love that. I can still see him standing in my dorm, uh, the threshold of my dorm, telling me that story. I was like, I love that. 
Jesus talks about this holistic health that Scripture brings and, and obedience to God's Word brings. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 23, he relates it here to the love of money. He says, do not lay for, uh, this is Matthew 6, 19 now, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's talking about the inward loves and desires and motivations here with regard to money and possession. And then he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And I think the connection here is if you have your eye on wealth, if the, uh, uh, or if you have your eye on uh, Christ, the eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy. But if your eye is bad, namely if you have your eye set upon the love of wealth, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then if the light is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And he's talking about this holistic health that, or unhealth that flows from either a person's love of money or their superior love to God. But these are just texts I'm pointing to to show, uh, to show this idea of holistic health that Scripture and obedience to it brings about. And that's what the psalmist is, is talking about here in this text. He is talking about this commandment of the Lord in, uh, is pure, enlightening the eyes, and not just merely enlightening the eyes, but filling out the whole soul with Health, And I think that's the way, at least this commentator, he says, this is the way we should be taking this phrase, enlightening the eyes. Uh, let me finish here, and um, then we'll take some questions. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And you might be wondering, whoa, the fear of the Lord, what is he talking about? I thought we were talking about the Word of God. I think the reason he brings in the fear of the Lord now is he's talking about the response that the believer has. He's just inserting now the response that the believer has in response to the the word of God, the fear, what, in their true response to, to the word of God is to the, the fear of the Lord. And if this fear of the Lord is based on the word of God, then it will be clean, pure, holy, and it will endure forever. Next, the rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The word for here, uh, which is uh, rules, can also be translated ordinances. It's a legal term. And it describes a judge's statement about what should have taken a place in a particular case as a description of God's word or of the law. It implies that this instructive guide to life, and I'm quoting, is God's own statement of what is appropriate in human conduct. A mispot, or that's the, word, the Hebrew word for ordinances or rules here, is not just a divine or royal demand that is, uh, that is what God wants. Rather, a mispot is a judgment by no less than God himself of what ought to occur of, uh, occur of what is right. Now, psychology is the study of human behavior. Scripture tells us exactly how humans should be behaving. They are true. They are righteous altogether. Scripture explains how humans were made and how we should live, and how we should behave, and how we should think. All, all people. Now, Christians have now the ability to obey that and have, with new hearts and new minds. But it goes for everybody. It's describing all people made in God's image. And these rules of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. They lead you in the right path. They lead you in true righteousness and true right behavior and conduct with, with others and with, with the Lord. 
Then he goes on to say, as a result, these words of God, this law is more to be desired, desired than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. These, this is valuable. It's sweet to the taste. One of the experiences of, of conversion is that you have a, now a taste for the word of God. It tastes good to you. Before it was lifeless and just kind of meh. Now it, it, and not to say that there aren't hard parts of Scripture, and you, when you get to some parts of doing your Bible reading plan, you're like, oh man, this is tough. I've got to get through this. But, but on the whole, the Scripture tastes good to you. That's, that's because of what it is. It's a reliable, good, true resource into an insight into God and to reality. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The scripture guards us from that which will harm us and destroy us. It gives us wisdom to navigate all of life. Um, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I want to be able to get into next week's topic. So, and these are, you are going to keep coming back to these, so let me just take a couple of minutes to go through now 2 Timothy 3. Go turn over to 2 Timothy 3. Just a couple of things I want to point out. 2 Timothy 3 talking about the nature of Scripture. First of all, it's God-breathed. It's a strong statement. Every word of God, every, every word of Scripture is, comes from the mouth of God. It's God's very word. But it's interesting because Paul makes this profound statement about the nature of Scripture. But on, he flanks his statement about the nature of Scripture with very practical uh, um, the, the very practical uses of Scripture, right? So he's talking about, it's, all, it's God breathing. And you're like, wow, that is the most profound statement I've ever heard. And then he's talking about, and, and, and because of that, it is meant to teach you, correct you, uh, and train you in righteousness. It's meant to lead you to salvation. Leading you to salvation, that's verse 15. Sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So all you need is a Scripture for salvation. But then, what about the rest of life? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, so that's teaching you, that's probably referring to specific doctrine about God, Christ, man, and so on. Doctrine, able to teach, uh, it's profitable for teaching. It's for reproof, for in your life you are uh, saying or doing things that are not in accord with, with God's word, and, and they, the scriptures now repro uh, reprove you, rebuke you. And they're profitable for that. And they're also profitable for correction. So you're going astray, and the Scriptures come and put you back on the right path. Right? They're also profitable for training you in righteousness. And then he goes on to say what this training in righteousness looks like. Making you complete, equipped for every good work. What good work in this life does Scripture not equip you for? None. There's every good work in every realm and every area that you find yourself, whether it's home or school or work, Scripture equips you for every good work that you would perform in those settings. This is, this is, pretty, this is pretty comprehensive. And then let's go to this last one, and then I'll take questions. 2 Peter uh, 2, just a, or 2 Peter 1, rather, a very important verse here. Uh, his power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What counsel do we receive about thinking and behavior that does not fall under the realm of godliness? And if it does fall under the realm of godliness, then it falls under 
the realm of what God has given us, which Peter says he's granted us all things that pertain to godliness. And how has he done this? Through the knowledge of him. That phrase is important because I think the implication is that this is, has a, at least an implicit reference to Scripture. Because the way he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness is through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his promises and uh, his precious and very great promises. Where? Where are his precious and very great promises found? In the Word. Where is knowledge of God found? In the Word of God. So I think here, at, at the very least, you have an implicit reference to Scripture because this is the place that uh, gives us knowledge of Him and His precious and very great promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So I'm going to stop there because I did want to, and we'll go back to these passages and talk about them, so it's not like this is just the only time you're going to hear about them, but... Um, I want to be able to, in next week, get into this distinguishing between, between, uh, st- distinguishing between how biblical, the biblical counseling methodology handles theological categories of general and special revelation and how the integrationist model handles these, biblical, these, these theological categories. I think it's going to be helpful and insightful. So I'll stop there. Questions? Yes, Austin. Welcome, welcome back, brother, by the way. So what we have to be careful of, of, of is grouping, using the word psychology or, or um, secular counseling is, is kind of monochromatic. There are lots of psychologies and methodologies within secular psychology, right? And historically, there have been all different branches and ways. Uh, I would say in terms of human responsibility, there was a, uh, there's a strain, a strain of teaching within secular psychology that did seek to place the responsibility on, on people in situations outside the actual person being counseled, right? But that actually has been challenged within psychology by some psychologists who have no concern over following scripture, but who recognize, no, we do need to put, thing, we do need to put the responsibility back on the person, yeah. right? But they're not thinking in categories of, of, at least not explicitly thinking in categories of sin and responsibility before God and so on. Uh, what I think you're asking, and I think it's insightful, and I probably would affirm it, is that people, uh, um, counselors, secular counselors, are wrestling with realities that they don't know how to label. They are wrestling with issues. They know something is wrong. They've, they believe they found the, the diagnosis and the description and the reason for it. 
Um, but they, because they're not accepting biblical categories, they can't rightly label it, they can't get down to the root of it, but they are wrestling with what we would call sin, right? So that's how I would, that's a great question. Yeah. It's interesting, here's an interesting note. As I get deeper into studying what psychologists write and, and even the, the development of the DSM, um, there is a real hesitancy to say we know what causes these things. At least, at least in the, in the, the science, scientists who are doing the real work, okay? Um, they're just, they're, in terms of the evidence, there's just a hesitancy to say we know what is causing these things, right? And I think I'm thankful for that because that's honest. Um, and we could come along and say, uh, we know, right? We, we at least know at the root of it, right? I'm not, I'm not a, uh, trained in all these various other areas, but I can, I can tell you what we know the root, root of it is, and uh, until you get to that root, then you're just managing the, the branches up here and uh, not really changing things fundamentally. So, good question. Other questions? All right, well, you guys, listen, keep thinking of questions, keep asking questions, keep emailing me if you want to, keep talking to me afterwards. Uh, again, I want you to have clarity. Um, I want to make sure that what I am saying when it comes to an opposing position is true and right, so please, I'm, I'm never offended if you come up and, and ask me or point something out, because uh, it just helps the teaching get that much better. So let me pray for you, and you guys have time to hang out and fellowship before the worship service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study of your word and thinking hard about it and applying it to our situation in life. And um, so we all probably have some experience in uh, the area of, of modern psychology and the, the, the thinking that is trying to assess our thinking and behavior according to categories that are not biblical. Uh, Lord, we do recognize that people are wrestling with sin even when they don't realize it, and we want to bring the gospel to bear. We want to see the gospel change lives and hearts, and we want to see people see the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of God for their uh, non-medical problems, and even for their uh, knowing how to handle medical problems and knowing how to trust and rely upon you as they seek the right medical uh, help and provision. So God, I just pray that you'd give us wisdom. We are so in need of it. Pour out your wisdom by your Spirit through your Word into all of our hearts. Give us clarity. Give us discernment. Give us love for our neighbor and gentleness and righteousness. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.